HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. Sorry about my voice today. Um, These allergies are killing me. So today we are going to talk about the um, couple things. We have Tom Philpott on the line with us. Um, Tom is one of my absolute all-time favorite guests and uh, my certainly my favorite journalist. He is the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones and the co-founder of Maverick Farms, a center for sustainable food education in Valley Cruces, North Carolina. He was formerly a columnist and editor for the online environmental site Grist, and his work on food politics has appeared in Newsweek, Gastronomica, and The Guardian. Welcome, Tom. How are you? Good, Katie. How are you doing? Uh, good, great. Uh, I am, you know, suffering from my weekend warrior status as a gardener, where I go out to my uh, place in Rhode Island and work the soil for, you know, eight hours at a stretch, <laughs> and then I wonder nice. why my hands won't work at the end of the day. <laughs> it's painful, but anyway. Um, so you were in New York last week. I missed you because I missed the whole ed- edible uh, communities event. But um, give us a quick recap because that was quite quite the event. It got lots of nice press in the progressive papers, and uh, it had some great looking panels on it. And you were on one of the panels at least. What were you doing? I was there. Um, I was on a journalism panel with uh, Sam Fromart. Oh yeah, and love Sam. Elizabeth Roy is a fantastic. She's uh, awesome. She's been writer. a guest. Yeah, I've had her yeah, a couple times. And an editor from Harper's um, who c- kind of uh, does their food coverage. I'm forgetting his name, but but he was cool. Um, and it was great. And the editor of Edible Manhattan, um, his name I'm also is also escaping me, but it was a lot of fun. And um, in addition to that, Mark Bittman gave kind of a rousing keynote. Uh-huh. Um, Anna LaPay also gave a keynote as well. That was that was She's really great. good. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Paul Greenberg, uh, who's a fantastic writer on fishery. Yeah, love him. 
did a really cool panel where he got some fishermen up up there and um, and talked about some of the issues facing fisheries and the whole paradox of our you know U.S. seafood. Um, you know, basically we import ninety percent of the seafood that we right. eat, and yet we export a third of our wild catch. So most of what we're importing is pretty low quality farm stuff yeah. from places like Southeast Asia and South America. Yeah. And meanwhile, we're um, we're catching some pretty fantastic fish and sending it off. To, to and is that more. is the reason we're sending it off because our uh, we're just not used to eating those particular types of fish? Are these unusual fish for the American palate? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think we've gotten used to you know your sort of red lobster, um, right. you know, long john silvers kind of seafood, which is a real commodity when it's sort of prepared and cooked in that way kind of standardized and it's really easy for those big companies to substitute into um you know the very cheapest products possible sure and other places have more of a relationship with you know sort of relationship with quality seafood and so that they're willing to pay up for our, our wild catch you know it's funny our our fisheries as fisheries aren't really managed that badly um you know com- compared to other places in the world yeah um most most of our what we're doing to our fisheries comes from Pollution and you know ecological degradation. Right. So we have we have we have pretty robust fisheries in some ways, but most of the catch is, is leaving the country, or you know a huge portion of the catch, I should say, not most. Right. Right. No, I've done quite a lot of reading around um, seafood because I I've written a couple articles for Food Arts about uh, the fishing industry. So I, I got a bird's eye view of the catch share program and got really down into that with, with fishermen yeah. and also with, uh, you know, with National Marine Fisheries uh, Services and stuff. So, um, yeah, I find the whole seafood thing fascinating, actually, because it is uh, it is a little bit of despite the catch share program it's definitely internationally is kind of the Wild West. And one thing is like what oh, I, yeah. I went to I don't know if I told you I was going to Vietnam this spring. No. Well, <clears throat> you can imagine that I had a field day looking at. Uh, the agricultural products there. And um, not that I had anything particularly organized about it, but when you're out in the country, which I was for much of the time, you're walking around and it's basically, it's an agrarian society. So there's a lot of um, livestock to look at. And there's a lot of, there are a lot of little fish farms, which I just found fascinating. And, you know, they were not exactly designed to, uh, I mean, not to diss my Vietnamese friends, but they were not designed to make me feel comfortable about eating farmed fish. Let me tell you. Mm -hmm. No. I mean, those were some little tiny pools, basically, <laughs> that were pretty murky. Like, I couldn't really see <laughs> through yeah. the water, you know, and uh, they don't, and i asking my guide questions about it. I was like, well, how do they clean out those little tiny pools that they're in? Well, I don't think they do, he says to me. Like, right. Great. <laughs> and, you know, unfortunately, I've done some reporting on the FDAs and the, the, the way that it oversees imports of that exact kind of seafood, right? And it's it's pretty minimalist, you know. They they test less than one percent, and right. um, when you know activists, kind of watchdog groups, have performed tests themselves, they find that you know they found stuff like banned pesticides, banned antibiotics. Oh, I'm sure. Like I mean, walking through the fields or walking through the the countryside, um, you you saw people with tanks on their backs uh, hosing down the crops with pesticides. You know, right. I mean, like, and then and then bags of nitrogen fertilizer just left by the road. You know, like for somebody to shovel out onto the patties or whatever. I mean, it was uh, you know, 
it was pretty it's tough very tough life pretty hard conditions uh to farm sure. in and uh and they're using every means they can to boost their crop yields obviously and uh they don't have a lot of information about what is and is not uh safe to eat obviously so um but anyway it sounds like a great panel i know that people can find out more about it on various um websites i know civil eats did some stuff Grist also, I'm sure the Edible uh, website is full of information. And I know you can listen to a lot of the panels. In fact, you can watch, I think there's video uploaded of, of, all the, of all the panels on the Edible website. Mm-hmm. I got to go and there. I, I highly recommend the Paul Greenberg one. Yeah, Paul's been a guest on this show a couple of times, and he is, without a doubt, one of my favorites. I mean, he's just so articulate, so knowledgeable, and he's such a great guy. But anyway, yeah, yeah, kind of like you, well. kind of like Tom It's one of the reasons I like you. You're just a great guy. So anyway, <clears throat> Tom, let us without further ado, talk about the National Climate Assessment Report that came out about two weeks ago um, and has really got everybody wagging their fingers and, <laughs> and saying, well, I told you so. I told you so, or at least, you know, in my group. Um, yeah, it was a pretty shocking, uh, you know, pretty terrifying report. Um, but who who was responsible for it? It was like a bi bilateral uh, multi country. Who was involved in this? Let's well, this this particular one is was the U.S. one because it's so the U.S. It was, National Climate Report. Yeah. So who yeah, are the? It was it was you know course. sort of uh, the federal agencies that would have anything to do with climate change. So you know EPA, USDA. NOAA, you know, the National Oceanic, Oceanic and Atmospheric whatever, Administration. Whatever that yeah. thing is called. Yeah. Um, so it's <laughs> all these different agencies coming together, and, you know, different agencies took control of different parts of it. And so obviously USDA oversaw the agriculture part. And um, and I don't I don't really think it, it taught us anything new that wasn't already out there? Because, you know, what, it, what it's basically doing is, is collating and gathering together all of the recent studies that people like you and me kind of follow as they come out. Right. Um, but, you know, it is, you know, it's sort of assessing them and kind, kind of giving, giving us the state of science. This is what the best science is telling us. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, I think the fact that it is this sort of government, and they also the contract was out with outside non-governmental researchers, but you know very highly respected ones, very mainstream ones, and you know I would say, given that it's you know these government agencies, if anything, it's giving us the the, the median to probably kind of best case scenario. It's not you know it's not anything. On the alarmist end, um, you know, it's pretty unassailable in terms of, you know, activists are, have taken control and are, you know, tweaking the information. You know, this is a, a, a very cautious approach. Huh. And, you know, especially given that, it's, it's pretty concerning. Um, oh, I, I found it terrifying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you put out that um, article in Mother Jones that was like seven graphs or, you know, seven ways. Yeah. I mean... You know, my blood sort of went cold when I looked at that. It was pretty scary stuff. Um, who? What do we think were the key points then? So, like, you know, there were there seemed to be like areas of of uh, concern. There's the soil erosion that's taking place because of heavy rains. Then there's the extreme drought in California and the Southwest. Um, yeah, you know, there's the 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 uh, 
closing in of our shorelines, the the rise in, in oceanic waters. What else was were the big points to you? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you when you think about when you think about the you know the, the basic kind of calculus of the next let's say thirty thirty or forty years, we know that that population is is going to grow by about 50% over the current level. I think, you know, the basic UN consensus is that we're going from about 6 billion to about 9 billion people. Right. And and so, you know, something has got to something's got to give in in food and ag systems. And one thing that this report is showing us and you know, the United States is you know, obviously a key linchpin in the global food system. Absolutely. And you know, as a temperate country it, you know it's it's got some of the some of the greatest soil resources in the world and you know it's got a good climate for growing you know it's obviously a a, a powerhouse this is one of the key nodes of the global um, food, food chain absolutely and what it's telling us is that it's going to be really really hard to you know if if present trends continue and things continue as they are going to be really, really hard to um, to actually grow more, much more food on, our, on on the land here in the United States. Um, you know, because you know, basically what what the sort of climate skeptics have been saying for a while now is, you know, even if you're right that we're we're putting all this carbon in the atmosphere and atmospheric carbon is growing, that's going to be good for food production because yeah. plants need CO2 and it's going to stimulate plant growth. And isn't that great? Well, this is a definitive repose to that, that other things like heat stress, like drought stress, mm-hmm. like soil erosion are going to make it really, really hard. It's basically going to offset the, more than offset, let's say, the, the effect of increased CO2. Right, by quite a bit. That's what it looked like to me. Yeah, <clears throat> by, by, by quite a bit. And then, and then another thing that's disturbing about it is that whereas crops, you know, crops are crops evolved in a very specific set of circumstances, and the crops that were growing, let's say, in the Midwest, um, of you know, they they were developed and they evolved in a in a century that had a pretty stable climate, yeah. and you know, one that that doesn't exist anymore, and and crops are a lot more fragile; they're a lot more dependent on things like that. Um, on, on sort of stable conditions, and there's another kind of plant that is much that is much more versatile. That's much you know adapts uh, adapts a lot faster, and that's weeds. And, <laughs> yeah, um, right. <laughs> and so, and weeds, uh, weeds. There are certain weeds that appear as though they are going to benefit from this extra CO2, mm-hmm. and are going to be able to adjust to the higher temperatures in a way that that crops aren't. So we're going to probably see more weed pressure. And one thing that I think that was kind of uh, buried in the report a little bit. I mean, it's a vast report, so I'm not I'm not criticizing it. Um, in fact, it was there in in black and white, and I missed it the first go around. But I, um, I I did something on it a week later. One thing that's in there is that and I had never heard this before, but apparently glyphosate doesn't work well. In, uh, for, for weeds that are sort of supercharged with CO2. So oh, as weeds are taking more CO2 and adjust to this 
new climate, um, glyphosate is going to lose effectiveness even more. Uh-huh. And as, as most of your listeners probably already know by now, it's already losing effectiveness because of overuse. But it's going to be right. yet another downward pressure on on glyphosate, Amazing. making it less effective and <clears throat> making far, you know farmers either use higher doses of it or revert to older more toxic. Well, which they are doing now. I mean, they're using that uh, 2D4, I think it's called, and that just got FDA. 2,4-D, thank you. And that just got some kind of an approval uh, that it had not had before, um, even though they've used it for years. But that was that's one of the components of Agent Orange, as everyone is very quick to point out. Um, So... You know, this is already happening. The glyphosate is being phased out. That's right. And other, other uh, you know, herbicides are being phased in. To what end, we don't know in terms of what they will do to uh, soil management and water tables and so on. That's um, right. I wanted to just go back for just a second to talk about the farm bill because the farm bill was pretty much business as usual um, in terms of, uh, you know, the big crop insurance programs for commodity uh, crops like corn, soy, rice, cotton, et cetera. Um, not a lot, yeah. you know, has changed in the farm bill. Um, and they, they ended up signing the farm bill or finishing the farm bill before this climate assessment came out, which says essentially that the crops that we grow as commodity crops are not going to be as successful in coming years as they have been now, which I think drastically changes uh, the picture for the farm bill. And yet we're stuck with this now for five years. What do you think is going (laughs) to, what do you think the outcome of that is going to be? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, the farm bill, you know, very, very few of the, the key challenges facing agriculture come up in the farm bill to date ever um, the way that it is right now mm-hmm. i mean the, the the 2014 farm bill that just got signed i guess early in january i mean if you think about what what was going on i mean none of the stuff that came out in this report was like i said none of it was new information any policymaker any usda official already kind of knew this stuff any anyone on anyone on the hill who who cared to look knew this stuff, and you know that, you know, we're moving rapidly into climate change. We've already seen, you know, in the last four or five years, um, incessantly chaotic weather in the Midwest. Yeah. We've had, you know, we had the biggest drought ever in 2012. The tornadoes. The wettest spring ever. Yeah. yeah, the wettest spring ever in the Midwest in 2013. You know, 2008, we saw huge, massive flooding and loss of Mm-hmm. of soil in the Midwest. These are these issues are, are out there. And, you know, in the Farm Bill, the basic debate was over, you know, how much to cut food stamps. You know, that's what right. that's what held it up. Um, that's what there, there were some there were some mini battles um, between the different commodities, you know, cotton and and corn and, and peanuts all had had little um, little skirmishes, but, but the main <laughs> just the debate was about how much are we going to cut food stamps at yeah. a time of growing poverty, which, you know, is pathetic in and of itself. But then when you think about the challenges facing agriculture, and this is our agriculture policy, um, you know, it's completely disconnected from that. And, you know, frankly, this report could have come out in the middle of that debate, and it wouldn't have changed it an iota. And, you know, it's basically that, you know, the agribusiness controls that debate. You know, in terms of farm policy, in terms of, you know, how we should run farm policy, 
there there is no real debate um, going on. Um, no, there's no debate, but there's also no acknowledgement of climate change. And that's what I think is so no. astonishing about this. It's like even the big players who stand to lose their shirts if they don't make some accommodation and start recognizing and making adaptations to status quo, they're going to lose their shirts. You know, yeah. it's I mean, True, that's what I know, find so ast- astonishing it's, it's, about it. I was just going to say, you know, if you're selling if you're selling seeds, if you're selling pesticides and fertilizers and things like that, there is loads and loads of money to be made between now and some point of no return um, on. And, and, you know, it it sounds very cynical, but that's what it seems like is going on. They really just don't care because, you know, they are going to make lots of money in the next quarter. And, you know, in in a situation where I remember in 2008 when there was all that flooding, there was this massive washing away of fertilizers and herbicides. Yeah. And the answer was to replant and reapply. So you got, right. you know, if you're <laughs> in one repeat. of those companies, all, all of that is great. You know, that's actually kind of great news. You're getting this, you know, boost yeah. in, in sales. And um, and if, you know, if glyphosate, um, if glyphosate loses effectiveness, well, we've got this other one, like you said, 2,4-D or Dicombo, which is another kind of bad old one. Right. Um, that can that can come in, and um, that, that's kind of where we, we are with that. Amazing. Tom, we're going to take a short break now for a sponsor drop. Um, folks, stay with us. We'll be right back with Tom uh, Philpot talking about agriculture and climate change. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain, Above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. I'm talking today with Tom Philpott, uh, who is the food and ag correspondent for Mother Jones. He's written a lot about the climate change assessment report that came out a couple of weeks ago. So we're dissecting it point by point. Um, <laughs> uh, Tom, I want to talk for a minute about... Um, about uh, long-term food security. For example, uh, when we talk about drought in California, and, and I did a show a couple weeks ago with the NRDC about drought in California uh, and water protection, water uh, you know, solutions, um, what are we going to do when California runs out of water? I mean, that's our well, breadbasket. <laughs> one hopes that we make some smarter decisions before that happens. Um, you know, currently... You know they've got a they've got this incredible infrastructure built up to get water, basically snow melt from the Sierra Nevada mountains to farms, and the snow melt is likely to decrease. Yeah, the amount of snow that gets packed into those mountains is likely to de- decrease over the years. And um, and I talked to a scientist at Berkeley a while back who looked at the fossil record. And she thinks that the twenty, even taking taking climate change off the table, the twentieth century was a very wet century uh, for California. It's wettest in you know many millennia. Really? And she, yeah, and she thinks that it's re- going to revert to mean and 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 be more like you know previous centuries coming up 
really soon, maybe right now. And so she thinks that California can expect about 15% less water. If, it, if that would be the, the reversion to mean like a more normal uh, situation. Um, then when you add climate change into it, what she says is that you're, you're shifting from, um, le- you're, you're going to get less snow and more rain, and less snow is bad because when, when, you, when it snows, it holds there right. all winter and then it releases in the spring, whereas rain is a whole lot harder to capture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially the way it works in California where you get rain only in very certain uh, seasons. That's right. And so that's, all that is bad news. Um, but at the same time, you're still going to have snowmelt. You're still going to have this resource, and you still have infrastructure um, built up over years, you know, billions of dollars of investments in it. And that resource could be used a lot smarter. Um, I think, you know, basically shifting, figuring out the crops that we really need, focusing on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, one, one thing that we're seeing is we're seeing this huge shift um, in the Central Valley of California to nut crops. And nut right. crops are good in some ways, and they're this great source of protein, other health, and great high-quality fat. Um, agriculturally, they should be limited there because when you have a drought in California, when you, have a, when you, get, when you get a dry year, yeah. if you've got... If you got annual crops in, you can simply fallow the crop that year, right? And then you know, forget about it, and then plant it the next year when you get when you get more snowmelt. If you've got a bunch of nuts, you got to keep those those trees alive. Yeah, and you, you've got you got to uh, water them, rain or shine. You got to water them right. no matter what. And that means irrigation. So you, yeah, and that means irrigation. And so what you get is what's happening right now, which I've written about. And that is this frenzy of water pumping. And this is where we get to your, to your question, what happens when California runs out of water? Mm-hmm. The Central Valley is sitting on this uh, fossil water supply, this underground, they call it um, groundwater. And um, not groundwater, it's, um, now I'm getting my, um, my terms mixed up. It's not um, an aquifer? It, it is groundwater because there's surface water and groundwater. So it's called groundwater. It's underground. Right, and they're, they're they're pumping the hell out of it right now. Yeah, um, they're acting. They're they're basically acting as if there isn't a drought, and they're, they're they followed a little bit of land, but not very much. And we're getting this boom in nuts, and so nuts are expanding, and this need for water is expanding. And so, if current trends continue, then your question becomes very relevant. Like, what happens when they when the la- the last suck of the straw, and you know, basically. <laughs> You know, as as the water table drops, pumping gets more expensive, more yeah. energy intensive, and we're already seeing that. Um, there's no doubt right now that we're that it's being pumped many times faster than it's being recharged. Right. And so the you know the the big I think the big challenge out there is to you know you think of a new way of doing things that doesn't rely on massive extractions of groundwater. During, during dry times. And, you know, one of the problems there is regulation. There's essentially no regulation of groundwater pumping. Uh-huh, yes. Um, if you own the land, you can drop a straw and suck all the water that you want. And that's happening. And, um, I mean, companies, big companies are buying water. They're buying land just for the water yeah. rights in, in uh, the they're Midwest buying and Colorado. Water rights. Yeah. 
And they're also, they're also doing insane things. Like there's parts of the Central Valley that have been grassland for, for cows for, for years and years and years and years, for, you know, sometimes more than 100 years. Yeah. And, you know, cow production is something that, you know, you can cull the herd. If you're not getting, if you don't have enough pasture, mm-hmm. you can grow the herd when you do. Um, and it's re- if it's done right, it's relatively low impact. And they're taking rangeland and literally putting in stands of nut trees. And so you're going from um, a kind of agriculture that is ver- that varies with rain levels to one that needs water year after year after year, and that's just. That's just insane. Yeah. And they've got to come up with some regulations that stop those kind of, kind of land use changes. Yeah. That just, that seems like a, you know, a ticket to, <laughs> a ticket to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about international trade. Speaking of beef and speaking of commodity crops, um, we send, as you pointed out earlier, when we were talking about fish, we send a lot of food overseas. Um, there's a lot of the Chinese are buying a lot of beef from us and they're buying a lot of other products from us. And I think that that, you know, are, are we going to be selling to uh, other countries at the expense of our own food security, do you think? And is that already happening? Well, one thing I should say is that um, a lot of the, the nut production is being driven by demand from China. Um, That's right. Yeah. Some huge portion of our, of the, you know, California grows something like 90% of the world's almonds, I mean, right. globally. Um, similar things with pistachios, walnuts. Um, and a big part of the, this boom that we're seeing, this dramatic expansion, is for the China market. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, and, you know, I think it is, I mean, I think, like with climate change, there, there's no real progress. We, need, we eventually need a global deal on climate. We need a global carbon deal. And I think that the only way you're going to get that is if the U.S. acts first, because we, you know, we're the country, along with Europe, that really benefited from the fossil fuel boom. Indeed. And, and caused, you know, most of, most of the problems that we're, we're going to have are already baked in from our emissions. Right. But I think we've really got to, we've got to act first. And I think this, the same is true for food in that we're going to need a global deal that you know, basically um, gets people to eat a little bit lower on the food chain. And that means, you know, we need to eat less meat. And more and crickets. Places where, where they don't eat so much meat, <laughs> they need to, they can grow their meat consumption, but, you know, not to the level that the U.S. has it right now or Europe has it right now. Right. Um, but, you know, to answer your question, yeah, I am worried that global trade flows are going to drive uh, a lot of agricultural change here in the United States in ways that we can't control. I mean, you know, the biggest pork producing company got bought by, by China Indeed, in, I do uh, last year. Mm-hmm. And that whole play is, a, is an export to China play. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, China mar- you know, the China food market has been complicated because the regime there has wanted to have a self-sufficient food policy. And they've done a dramatic, they've had a really dramatic agricultural miracle in the past generation or two. Right. But, you know, basically, I think their agricultural miracle is tapped out. It can't expand anymore, really. I mean, there's some marginal things that can happen. But they have realized that they have to 
you know, start importing a lot. And they're actually not importing their beef right now. Most of their beef imports come from Australia. Huh. They, they, they put a, a ban on uh, U.S. beef in 2003 over a um, oh, mad cow here, and they haven't taken it. They, yeah, they haven't taken it off. Oh, I didn't but realize that. There's I a lot of speculation. Lots of speculation that, that it's going to come off as soon as this year. Yeah, I've but heard that. You know, Absolutely. In fact, I thought they were buying from us again. Yeah, and they're huge importers of of our pork and chicken, um, and they're chicken and really big importers of chicken, and um, what they're really massively importing is seed. So you know, huge amount, huge and growing amounts of our corn and soy are going to China, right? As is the you know the consumption of Brazil, and so you know, as we're talking about um, we're talking about how we need to change our agriculture because of climate change and the inability of the farm bill to kind of do anything about it. There are these global market forces that are also keeping our our current um, system in place. And, yes. you know, that is, you know, China basically provides a price. You know, provides a, a their demand provides a, a price floor for corn and soy mm-hmm. that is going to keep that machine pumping for a while. I think. Yeah, I I think I think that is true. Also, I was uh, just as an aside again to refer to my trip to Vietnam. I was amazed at how much corn they're planting. Like that really struck, right. caught me by surprise. But they have a lot of corn going on there, and it's part you and know you it's partly to feed livestock. But I'm sorry, what? I would assume it's mostly for feed, right? It's mostly for feed, but they're eating corn too, and they don't really like it. But um, in case of you know like a low rice yield or something like that, it's a fallback staple for them. Yeah, it was interesting you know, to people me. Don't, people don't realize that after the United States, China is the second biggest producer of corn, mm. and it, you know. They basically put dramatically extended their own their own corn production for livestock seed. Yeah, but they've you know, and they they kept out U.S. If you look at the the China um, corn imports to the United States, it, it's basically zero, and then it, it explodes in two thousand nine. Huh, interesting. And then it's been at this heightened level ever since, and and that is that reflects a conscious decision. Okay, we can't we we can't keep up with with demand for corn in right. our livestock sector. We need to go to the to the big corn bank, which is U.S. <laughs> That's right. So that, well, also they, they run out of the the Chinese have a limited amount of arable land, right? Because they're yeah they they do not have the great wide open spaces that the United States is so blessed with, and so for them, uh, you know, they can't just monocrop with you know thousands or millions of acres of corn or soy. And that's why they've bought right. so much land in, in Brazil as well to grow soy, right? Or Argentina. Yeah. And also Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Their, their arable land per capita, I don't, I'm not looking at the numbers right now, but I've written about it. It's a fraction of ours. Yeah. It's something like a, a quarter of ours. And yet their population and, uh, is many times ours. So, <laughs> yeah. They, they have and a they, real you know, food they, security issue. A 20% of their farmland, they just came out with a report. This is one of those things that has been known for, the report came out a while back and it, the government tried to repress it, and mm-hmm. it just kind of released a report about a month ago that found that about a fifth of its farmland is really badly polluted from both industrial waste and also from over-application of fertilizer. Yeah. So you got a fifth of farmland that are degraded, and then you, you overlay that with that they've got very little arable land per person. Right. And you're looking at um, a monstrous food importer going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And their population is not uh, diminishing particularly. Although I don't no, think it's growing. It's certainly not growing the way the Middle East is. I mean, 
because the Chinese limit how many children you can have, as they do in Vietnam and most of the Asian countries, apparently. Yeah. So the population isn't going to expand dramatically, but it, it, it's already huge. Yeah. And they're, you know, the, the rising consumption of meat just makes it more and more resource intensive as, as time goes on. Yeah, it's really, it's stunning. Well, we're going to talk about this some more, but um, I wanted to um, just read this quote that I read. I think it was in The Guardian, um, just because I loved it so much. But apparently under, this is a quote, under an act of Congress, the reports, and we're talking about the National Climate Assessment Report, the reports were supposed to be produced every four years, but no report was produced during George W. Bush's presidency. And I just said, <laughs> oh my God, duh, of course you wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of don't ask, don't tell policy. I'll say. <laughs> Guys, like, you know, totally into the fossil fuel. And you can imagine that Mr. Cheney had something to do with that as well. I mean, yeah, sure. let's put it, another black mark on the Bush presidency. I mean, just yeah. to, it's almost like it's like there couldn't have been a worse person to run this country for eight years. Like he did so much damage, especially in this sector of like not focusing on uh, energy alternatives and not bringing any attention to agriculture. And it's just like, we lost so much ground in that 10 years, basically. It just breaks my yeah. heart to think about it. And if you, you know, one thing that I, I cause I was, I just started to write about this stuff in a big way in the middle of in the middle of that presidency. Uh-huh. And um, one thing that I just found stunning was that one of the, you know, when Bush finally acknowledged that climate change might be a problem and that you know our reliance on oil might be a problem, his only policy response was ethanol. Uh, and That's he, right. You know, he dramatically ramped up ethanol. Now it's like his big sort of concession to climate change and. It was supposed to be challenging the oil industry by accepting this alternative fuel. Yeah, and um, all it did was challenge farmers. You deep into it, that was a that was a bad joke. It was a a desperate thing to do. And you know very well as a farm owner yourself. I mean, corn prices went up to like nine dollars a bushel from two bucks. You know, before that, and it's taken years and years to stabilize that corn market. Um, and get the prices back to a place where the average small size farmer, mid sized farmer can actually afford corn um, themselves. Right. I mean, it was like it was staggering what was going on. And just yes. just to keep the um, the ethanol game going, you know, it's like I got to know who who was making money on that. Somebody in particular really, really cashed in. So ADM is a good example. <laughs> <laughs> right. And wait, ADM, what is that? Oh, Archer, Archer Daniels, Daniels Midland. Midland. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you're right. They would be the ones. Um, so anyway, and the last thing I wanted to bring up before we close, which we have to do in a couple of minutes, is did you see that um, there is a big run on fracking rights in New Mexico right now? Have you followed that at all? There's like all these I leases are looked, being. I have looked at that. And, you know, I'm down here in Texas nowadays. And um, you, you know, are very similar, you know, similar geography. Yeah. Um, just. I guess just east of there, you know, Texas is doing massive fracking. And I already know the question you're going to ask, and that is, where in the hell was the water coming from? Yeah. And I, I honestly don't know. I mean, that is, that is a really good question because water is so scarce in <laughs> West Texas and South Texas and yeah. in New Mexico. They have entire have, towns that are out of water, literally don't have water, right? Yeah. And to bring that conversation circle full circle back to California, you know, there's a there's massive oil deposits in the Monterey Shell, which is in the Central Valley. Mm. And there's a push Water. to to uh 
to, to frack. There's a major push afoot to frack in that land. And we were just talking about how are we going to, you know, uh, without fracking, how are we going to keep farming going in California? What, you know, what changes have to be made? And you add another massive, you know, both consumer of water and fowler of water yeah. in the middle of an agriculture zone. How does that work? I don't know. And, um, I, I honestly don't know. Um, it's crazy. It's really crazy. And, I, you know, it seems very wrong that there uh, isn't some sort of national referendum on these policies that we just seem to, like, sell off this stuff to the highest bidder without any, you know, consideration for the public or the consumer. You know, we'll be paying much higher food prices in the future thanks to all of this activity because we'll be importing our own food. We won't be making food yeah. for export anymore. We'll be importing it like the Chinese have to. I mean, it's going to be a joke. And I've looked at, I, you know, I've, I've I've looked pretty closely at that, and um, I I just don't see where, you know, I don't see where this this other place that we're going to import it from is. I mean, these <laughs> markets are already, um, you know, I guess my my quick because I did a Mother Jones column on, you know, what happens if California runs out of water, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, one thing that one little bit of hope is that in the Midwest in the Corn Belt. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, you're talking about, you know, I don't know, 130, 140, 150 million acres. And that's not going to be converted to vegetables, obviously, in the no. Corn Belt. But you could convert some of it, some, you know, rather small percentage of it in the, the greater uh, scheme of things, and do very, very good vegetable, fruit and vegetable production. You know, it's never going to be California because it doesn't have, you know, it's not sunny and warm year-round. Mm. But in the, in the growing season, you could get significant fruit and vegetable production. And, you know, some of the crops could be, you know, things like apples that they keep for a while. Sure, um, apples, have, potatoes, turnips, all the root vegetables, yeah. all of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Stuff that can be processed in the in the canned tomatoes. You know, California is the leader in you know basically U.S. Sure. canned tomato production happens in California. Right. Um, you could you could get a significantly significant boost in vegetable production in the Midwest. You know, since the price of corn went down and then stabilized, you know, somewhere between four and five dollars. There was that uh, Michael Moss article in the New York Times a few months ago about right. how farmers are experimenting um as they were before ethanol they're experimenting in you know let's let's take 20 acres of our you know 2000 5000 acre farm and put in a, put in a few vegetables and see what happens right and that is the kind of thing that i think could partially offset the you know what i think is the inevitable you know at least decline of fruit and vegetable production in california yeah is re-regionalize it and in places like the Midwest, where they have huge amounts of rich soil and they've got a pretty good, you know, relatively speaking, pretty good water situation, I think vegetable production could, could bo- you know, boost up there. And well, I imagine the vegetables Iowa, are, they can't be as, producer, and they can't be as water intensive as some of these other monocrops, right? Right. No, exactly right. And, you know, there's, there's this fallow thing where you could, you could fallow in, in some years. Um, yeah. You know, some of it. It's more flexible. Well, there was a big um, study so I, I just, at, at Iowa State hope. about that, about changing, about rotating out, you know, your crops, you know, on a, on a, on a three crop, you know, a three, rota- a three crop rotation instead of the two crop rotation and how much better that would be for the soil. Unfortunately, Tom, we've yeah. got to wrap it up here. Um, but you'll be back in a few weeks. 
<laughs> and what are you doing in Texas, by the way? Why are you down there? I grew up here, and my family is from here, and I am. Oh yeah, back we called your mom by mistake this morning. <laughs> Say again. We called your mom by mistake this morning. <laughs> she said, "He don't really? live here anymore." <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm down here to be closer to my family for good. for family reasons. Very good. All right, my darling. Thank you so much for this, Tom. Again, as always, a great conversation, and uh, I look forward to the next one. We'll be talking soon. Take care of yourself. Always great talking to you. Thank Take you. Care, Katie. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And thanks to my sponsor, Kane Winery, and to my engineer, Jack Inslee. We'll see you next week for another great show. Enjoy the week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.